Okay, we're going to get right into the word at 7.50, but it's a good one. This is a word I told you about several weeks ago when I came back from the Andrew Womack conference. P, uh, PK's dad, Padua, was there. Karen was there. So we have a couple people that have heard this, this teaching, and it was revelatory. But like Tom has said, and I'm just going to repeat it because it's worth saying again, my revela- Andrew's revelation doesn't do me any good unless it's my revelation. My revelation of God's truth and God's word doesn't do you any good unless it's your revelation. So my prayer right now is that as I share this truth that is powerful, that we will receive it. Tom, I agree with you praying that the seed that is sown tonight will, pro- will produce a harvest. That our almighty God, oh, it, it, that, that there's just so much there that the truth of the word goes out, that it is watered, that it is fertilized, that it is nurtured, and that it is fruitful as Abba brings it to manifestation in Jesus' name. So the name of the, the, the teaching is the same as the title of the conference, which is Magnify the Cross Over the Loss. Two weeks ago, I taught a, a session called The Condition of Our Heart. And I believe that you're going to see, and I'm going to refer back and forth to the two teachings. I believe that that foundational teaching just feeds right into this one. So here is, well, before I start, I want most of these scriptures are from the book of Philippians. Paul wrote the book of Philippians when he was in prison. He had actually been in prison for five to seven years when he wrote this book to the church of Philippi which went out to many churches, including us. We are the church. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are the bride that he is preparing. We are the church. And this word was written to the church by the Apostle Paul when he was in prison, and he had been in prison for over five years. It's interesting that this book, the nickname for this book is the Book of Joy. The reason it's called the book of joy is because Paul referred to joy 17 times in the book of Philippians. In the midst of everything he was going through as an imprisoned man, he wrote about joy. The reason I believe he wrote about joy and encouraged us to rejoice and talked about joy so much is because he was practicing what we're preaching tonight. He was magnifying the cross over everything else. So here's the foundational scripture. This is Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, But whatever former things were gains to me, as I thought then, these things once regarded as advancements in merit, I have come to consider as loss, absolutely worthless for the sake of Christ and the purpose which he has given my life. So in this first scripture, Paul is referring back to his merits, to his qualifications, to his resume. We're going to look at that scripture in just a minute. But that's what he was referring to. He says, I consider all of that as loss, absolutely worthless. Then verse 8, he says, but even more than that, even more than my resume, even more than my qualifications, I count everything as loss, everything, compared to the priceless privilege and the supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and of growing more deeply and thoroughly acquainted with him, a joy unequaled. For his sake, I've lost everything, and I consider it all garbage so that I may gain Christ. The word garbage in the old King James is the word dung. I consider it all dung. In the new King James, it's rubbish. I consider it all rubbish. And in the amplified, it's I consider it all garbage. I want to define those two words, consider or count, and the word loss. 
you'll see in the scripture that they're both underlined. The word consider as loss and the phrase count everything as lost. The word consider and count are the same Greek word. It means to count by force, by command. It means to rule over and to put the flesh under. So what he is saying literally is that he is making a choice to take a stand and to command the things, uh, the other things that we're going to talk about in a minute, the merits of his life, the losses of his life, the, the, the trauma of his life. He's commanding all of that to go under Jesus. He's commanding his flesh to bow down and saying, nope, you're not important. What is, is Christ and his cross. So that word count or consider is a very strong word. He is taking a very firm action. He is saying, I'm making a choice. It isn't a choice that your flesh wants to make. But he chose to command all other things to be under, to be subservient to what is most important, which is Jesus and the work of the cross. And then he says that word loss. He says, I count or I consider all of it as loss. And that word loss means detriment or damage. So he's saying, I count everything else as literally detrimental or even damaging to me. If I give that thing life, whatever that thing is, and we're going to talk about the things that we count as loss as we go on through this teaching, but whatever it is, he says, Paul says, I count it. I consider it. I command it to bow down because it's detrimental if I allow it to rise up in my life. It's damaging if I allow it to rise up in my life. So what I'm going to do is I am going to show you through two examples what this looks like according to accounts in the Bible. I'm going to look at the, the example of the apostle Paul in more detail. And then I'm going to look at the example of Jesus. And then we're going to look at how it applies to us. So the first example is Paul. And I've got three or four or five scriptures that show the different ways that he counted everything as loss compared to Christ. Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. This scripture comes directly before the one that I introduced this teaching at, with. And this is what he says. He says, if anyone else thinks that he has reason to be confident in the flesh, that is, in his own efforts to achieve salvation, I have far more. Circumcised when I was eight days old, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, an exemplary Hebrew. So Paul, in this phrase, was painting a picture of his heritage. And at that time, that was very, very important. He was very high up in the level of, of uh, status because of his background, because of where he was, who the families and the tribe that he was born into. And then the next phrase says, as to the observance of the law, a Pharisee. Pharisees were good observers of the law. And remember, Paul lived before the New Testament the new covenant was established when he still, he lived in both the old covenant and then the better covenant. So he lived under the law and he was good at it. He was a Pharisee. The next phrase says, as to my zeal of Jewish tradition, a persecutor of the church. He was a zealot. He was active. He was active in persecuting others who weren't in agreement with the old law covenant after the new covenant had been established. He was a persecutor of the church. And as to my righteousness, as to righteousness, supposed right living, which my fellow Jews believe is in the law, I proved myself blameless. So he was saying, you know what? I, found, I followed the rules pretty well. I, I consider myself blameless. Now this is one section of what Paul considered as loss. 
He considered it, remember, as detriment or damage compared to the work of Jesus and knowing Jesus. So there's one area. Here's the second area. This comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren of the Lord having become confident in my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So in this scripture, Paul is saying, okay, he's in prison. He is living in prison. He has been for five years. But he's even considering the time he spent in prison as loss, as not important because of what is happening. Christ being magnified. While he was in prison, there's two sectors of people he's talking about here. The first one are the people who are keeping guard over him, the palace guard. He said, my chains are in Christ. The whole palace guard knows it. He was, li- he was a living epistle, even in that environment, even to the non-believers. He was showing them Christ, and that was what was important to him. And then the next section says that... Um, the brethren, his brother and his fellow believers, they have become confident and they have begun to speak with much more boldness without fear as a result of him being in prison. This is one of the scriptures that God gave me as a rhema word way back 15 years ago when I was in the middle of the battle with cancer. And the word that he spoke to me, I, was, I didn't have the manifestation of healing yet. But one of the words that he spoke to me, okay, God, help me to say this, because I don't want to in any way, I don't in any way want you to misunderstand this. But I believe God spoke to me through this scripture, and he said, Cindy, what has happened to you will serve to advance the gospel. That's what the scripture says. Paul says, what has happened to me, this imprisonment, has served to advance the gospel. Now, I have to say two things. The first thing is that God does not do bad things. God did not give me cancer. God is a good father, a good, good father. But he does use situations to further his gospel. We see it in Olga, this woman who is more bold than she's ever been. She's seeing through a new lens because of the experience she's lived through. I'm in a different place, guys, than I was 15 years ago. Big different place. And yes, it has caused me to serve him, but that's not why I was diagnosed with cancer in the first place. had nothing to do with it. It's just because I said, I have this amazing God, and I can't wait to tell everybody about him. So Paul, me, Olga, consider all that stuff as loss, detriment, damage. It doesn't matter for the purpose of knowing Christ, knowing his finished work, and being able to see that go to more and more and more and more people, like a ripple effect. So that's another area where Paul considered it all as lost, rubbish, dung. Didn't matter to him that he was sitting in prison. And then the next scripture goes even a step further. This is in the same chapter, starting with verse 20. It is my own eager expectation and hope that looking toward the future, I will not disgrace myself nor be ashamed in anything, but that with courage and the utmost freedom of speech, even now, He's talking from five years of prison. Even now, as always, Christ will be magnified. We're talking about magnifying Christ, magnifying the cross, magnifying Jesus and his finished work. Christ will be magnified and exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. 
So at the beginning of the scripture, Paul is saying, here he is, man in prison for many years. And he's saying, this is my hope. This is my expectation that I won't be shamed, that I will not be ashamed, that I will be courageous, that I will have utmost freedom of speech even here in prison. Because my biggest, biggest desire is that Christ will be magnified. And then he goes on. He says, for, for to me, to live is Christ. He is my source of joy and my reason to live. And to die is gain. For I will be with him in eternity. If, however, it is to be life here and I am to go on living, this will mean useful and productive service for me. So I don't know which to choose if I'm given that choice. But I'm hard-pressed between the two. I have the desire to leave this world and be with Christ. But that's far, far better. Yet to remain in my body is more necessary and essential for your sake. As I look at Paul in this scripture, he is saying, even if I, he's in prison with a very real threat of being um, martyred. And he's saying, even if I'm martyred, even if I'm martyred, if Christ is magnified, if the glory of God is magnified above all, then I consider even my life a loss. When I was just preparing for this, I couldn't help but think of our nation, the state of our, not our nation, but our world, the state of our world right now. And how many people are standing boldly in their faith when their very life could be completely taken from them in an instant through ISIS, through the, the, the corrupt stuff that's out there in the world. And yet so many count even their life as a loss compared to being bold and confident in their faith and magnifying Christ. So the next scripture about Paul I want to share is Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. And in this scripture, Paul is talking about being content in any situation. John 10, 10, the second part, Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full and to the overflow. And I believe this scripture, Paul shows us how he does that. He says, not that I speak from any personal need, for I have learned to be content and self-sufficient through Christ, satisfied to the point where I'm not disturbed or uneasy regardless of my circumstances. I know how to get along and live humbly in difficult times. And I also know how to enjoy abundance and live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing life. And I believe that he's learned the secret of enjoying life in every situation and living the fullness of life, whether well-fed or going hungry, whether having an abundance or being in need. I can do all things which he has called me to do through him who strengthens and empowers me to fulfill his purpose. I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. Notice he doesn't say I'm self-sufficient. He says I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. I'm ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses his inner strength, who infuses me with inner strength and confident peace. So here is a, here is a, a, really powerful truth. And this is one that hit me, I think, one of the hardest when I was at the Andrew Walmart conference. When Christ is our first, our, our, our number one, who we look to, who we seek, who we pursue, who we choose to magnify, no matter what, like Paul is in prison, I believe that enables us to walk steadfast through life. You may have mountains. You may have valleys. The Bible says in John 16, that there will be tribulations and trials. 
But I believe we can walk. We can choose. This is a choice. It doesn't happen without our active role. And we're going to talk about our part in a minute. But we can choose to magnify the cross over everything else and walk steadfastly with inner strength and confident peace. Isn't that good news? Andrew shared so many stories. The majority, I mean, literally, I'm teaching in 45 minutes what he taught in a weekend. But he shared so many stories, specific stories of his life, of people he knows that have walked through really difficult seasons with peace, with inner strength, steady, steady, not falling apart, but steady because of Christ in them and their knowledge of the finished work that was their focus. So then the last scripture I want to share in regards to the Apostle Paul is an example where uh, he's been preaching, he's been speaking through the book of Philippians. But in this, this verse from Acts, this account, it shows that he was practicing what he was preaching. So this is the um, account where Paul and Silas are taken prisoner. Starting with verse 22. Then the multitude rose up together against them, against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. When they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So here they are. They have, first of all, been taken prisoner. They have been stripped. They have been beaten by rods, which, um, according to history, that means that they, their, the bottom of their feet was beaten so brutally with rods that most people that had, their, had been beaten with rods were permanently disabled and crippled so that they couldn't walk well because of the way that it injured their feet. Then they were flogged. And again, according to history, typically when they were, that was the um, punishment, it was 39 stripes because 40 would kill them. And then they were taken to prison and they were, the, the jailer, the head person was told to keep them securely. Probably they were thinking about Jesus that died and raised from the dead and they didn't want to lose another one. So he put him in stocks. He, he fastened, the, the jailer fastened their feet in the inner prison. I've heard a teaching that the inner prison was way worse than the rest of the prison. And it's where the human, um, uh, whatever you call it, sewage, human sewage was. And they were standing in that with all of the wounds, all of the pain. And what did they do? The next verse says, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And all of the other prisoners were listening. I would say that they didn't feel like praising. But that's what they did. They were magnifying Christ and his finished work over everything else, over the loss, great pain, great loss. They were magnifying Jesus above everything. And we know the rest of the story. There was an earthquake. And even when there was an earthquake, and I, we know this is supernatural because the, the chains fell off of them and they were free. But instead of running free, they stayed and they led the jailer to salvation and his family. They were in the presence of God. They were magnifying the finished work of the cross and sharing that with the jailer instead of escaping to their own freedom. They were magnifying the cross over their loss. That's a pretty big example. <laughs> So the next example I want to share is the example of Jesus. This is also a Philippian scripture, chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. 
Let this same attitude and purpose and humble mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Let him be your example in humility, who, although being essentially one with God and in the form of God, possessing the fullness of the attributes which make God God, did not think this equality with God was a thing to be eagerly grasped or retained, but instead he stripped himself of all privileges and rightful dignity so as to assume the guise of a servant, a slave, in that he became like men and was born a human being. And after he had appeared in human form, he abased and humbled himself still further and carried his obedience to the extreme of death, even the death at the cross. So here's Jesus, God. He was one with God. He had all the attributes, possessing the fullness of the attributes which make God God. And he chose to strip himself of all privileges and, dig and rightful dignity. Jesus was fully man. And he was fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit. He came as a servant. He came as a slave. And then he, he humbled himself even further and he chose to die for us. He was counting his own cross and the own, his own works over everything else. In the next scripture, which is Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus, for the joy of obtaining the prize that was set before him, endured the cross, despising and ignoring the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus saw us, the prize. He saw that the price that he paid would ransom us, that he would take the judgment for us, that he would destroy death, he would destroy the power of sin, he would destroy the power of the enemy, he would do all of that, and it was worth it to him. He considered his own cross, the own, his own price that he had to pay, over the loss. He considered us as the prize over the loss. He didn't count the loss. He counted his own divinity as loss compared to winning us. This next scripture from Matthew is written when Jesus was hanging on the cross. And it's about... The, the way that he was viewed, the way that Jesus was viewed. Those who passed by were hurling abuse at him and jeering at him, wagging their heads in scorn and ridicule. And they said tauntingly, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself from death. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And in that same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, he saved others from death. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe in him and acknowledge him. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus came to save himself. He came to save us. Jesus didn't count the loss of his own physical torture or torment or ridicule or shame or even his death over the prize of saving us and reconciling us back to God. Jesus didn't count the loss as more than the cross. He knew that the cross was the price that needed to be paid. And he chose to pay it. So how does that apply to us? How does that apply to us? I'm going to share four potential dangers where we can allow things in our life 
to rise up above Jesus where we can allow things to get out of priority, out of balance, and it's pretty easy to do. We see it all the time. We probably lived a lot of what I'm going to share. But God has a better way. So I'm going to just expose these four areas. And then we're going to just oh, believe God that we can change our focus and continuously keep our eyes on Jesus and walk in that steadfastness and that consistency of life and strength that Jesus came to purchase for us. So here's the first danger. The first danger is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Many times in this world, when we have gifts or talents, or when we work hard to achieve something, like degrees, or um, uh, uh, moving in our careers, or having a family, when we work hard and we attain things, we tend to trust in ourselves. We tend to, instead of being surrendered and dependent, which is what God says is best for us, we tend to be independent we tend to be in control instead of submissive we tend to be the controller instead of allowing god to be in in lordship over our lives many of you know my story but before i was diagnosed with cancer that is a picture of me paul's story of i was the hebrew of hebrews i was this i was that i was the next thing that's what i that's what i was like I didn't realize it, I didn't know it, but I had a life of idolatry because I was putting everything above God. God was on my list. I was a religious woman, so God was on my list. But he wasn't the Lord of my life. I believed in him, but he wasn't the Lord of my life. When I was diagnosed with cancer, all of a sudden there was something I couldn't fix. I couldn't achieve. I couldn't work for and fix. There was nothing according to the doctors that I could do. And that's when I surrendered. That's when I gave Jesus lordship over my life. That's for the first time in my life when I surrendered. But what I learned from then until this day, and I'm sure it will continue my whole life long, is that surrendering is something we need to do constantly. And that it wasn't just the healing that God wanted me to surrender. It was everything in my life, from my family to my career to my uh, being a wife to being a teacher to doing everything I do needs to be in submission to God, dependent on him and not doing it on my own. Because we, I, this sounds really not very nice to say, but we can do it on our own. We can try to do it on our own. Without God, many people do. They don't realize what they're missing. They don't realize how much better it is when you let God be God in your life. He wants us to die to self. We need to die to self and to die to taking the glory for ourselves. God will not share his glory. Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else, nor share my praise with carved idols. Now, most of us probably don't have carved idols if we are a Christian, but we may have idols. An idol is anything that you put above or before God in your life. My life was full of idols before I came to know this truth. So the, the scripture I want to read now talks about dependence instead of independence. When we are dependent, God can use us. When we just stand back and say, okay, here I am, God. He can use us. I love this scripture. Just look at your own calling, believers. Not many of you were considered wise according to human standards. 
Not many powerful or influential. Not many of high and noble birth. God has selected for his purpose the insignificant, the base things of the world, and the things that are despised and treated with contempt, even the things that are nothing, so that he might reduce to nothing the things that are, so that no one may be able to boast in the presence of God. One of the most exciting things that I've discovered as a believer is that he doesn't, qual- he doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And it's so, ah, oh, I have to do is say yes. And Olga, what you're doing right now is an example of that. God will bless it. God will give you the way to take that idea, that awesome idea that he gave you and take it out and expand it. Because that's what he does. So that's the first danger is self-righteousness and being independent instead of dependent. Because you're not counting as loss all of the qualifications. You're putting that on a pedestal and saying, well, because of this, I can do this. God says, no, no. Because of me, you can do that. Because of the gifts that I have put in you, you can do that. So be cautious of self-righteousness. The second one is to continuously look back at the past, whether it is your past accomplishments and the things that you have done and, and strived for, like we just talked about, or whether it is stuff in your life that you've lived through, trauma, woundedness, issues of life. Both of those can be up in our face in a place where they're affecting our today when they shouldn't be because they've already been dealt with through the cross. So let's read the scripture. This is Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. Paul's speaking, and he says, Not that I have already obtained this goal of being Christ-like or have already been made perfect, but I actively press on so that I may take hold of that perfection for which Christ Jesus took hold of me and made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it on my own yet. But one thing I do. So before I read this one thing, here's this man who is a a powerful apostle of Jesus, a man whose whole life has changed, a man who has been in prison for Jesus and doesn't even care because the gospel is being promoted, a man who, who is growing and growing and growing and wants to grow more and be matured even more. And with all of that stuff in his life, he says, there's only one thing that I do. And in the New King James, it says, there's only one thing I focus on. And this is what he says. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the heavenly prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's no reason to keep looking back and allowing that past to affect your future. I don't look back at the, at the cancer days and allow that episode with cancer to put fear in me. Uh-uh, I refuse. That is a thing of the past. I've been redeemed. I've been healed. That's back there. I am here and I am pushing, pressing forward. Whether it is, uh, and I'm just going to throw some examples out there. Whether you were abused as a child, it doesn't matter. You have a new life, a new identity. You are the daughter of the king. You have a really good, good father. Paul says, forgetting all that lies behind and pressing forward to what's ahead. Maybe you were traumatized through an accident, maybe even a a very serious injury. That doesn't mean that you have to take that and carry it forward. God says, the word says, leave that behind and press forward. Andrew made a statement at that conference that I wrote down. I loved it. He said, When all you do is magnify Jesus and his finished work of the cross, you're like Teflon and nothing sticks to you. So all of that stuff that was 
was stuck to you. I call it residue. All that residue that you carried from before, from your life, before you knew Jesus, and before your mind was renewed to the truth, all that stuff, when you magnify Jesus, when your focus changes, when you're considering Jesus instead of the issue, all of that just slips off like, like you're made of Teflon. It doesn't stick anymore. I told you the story about my daughter-in-law who was raped when she was young. She says, that's not me, Mom. She says, I'm not that person anymore. I, she says, it's, I don't even feel like that's who I am because she lived a completely different life before she came to know Jesus. She made a lot of poor choices. And that's not even her. She doesn't want to go back there. She's already forgiven and let it go. That is important. But she's done that. She doesn't need that residue. She doesn't need to keep stirring it up because it's not who she is anymore. She's Teflon. It doesn't stick to her. It's not part of her anymore. If your satisfaction is in the Lord, your emotions will be steady and consistent no matter what. You guys know my daughter's on the Appalachian Trail. I have no fear. I've told you that. It's true. I rejoice. I love to talk to her. I pray for her all the time. But I have no fear. I'm steady. I'm consistent. Because I know Jesus. I know his finished work. I speak over her. I'm doing the best thing I can do for my daughter. And I have confidence in my God. So we don't need to look back. Here's the next danger. And this is a big one. This is a great big one in healing, in this healing class. In pre pretty much any area of life, this is a big one. Magnifying the issues of life. Philippians 3, verses 17 through 19. Brothers and sisters, together follow my example and observe those who live by the pattern we gave you. For there are many of whom I've often told you, and I'll tell you even with tears, who live as enemies of the cross of Christ, rejecting and opposing his way of salvation. Now we know the word salvation is the word sozo. It means saved and healed and delivered and made whole. Whose fate is destruction, whose God is their belly, their worldly appetites, their sensuality, their vanity, and whose glory is in their shame, who focus their mind on earthly and temporal things. Now, I might be taking this a little bit out of context, but what I want to share is that when our focus is on earthly things, the issues of life, temporal things, the things of our senses, what we see, what we hear, what we feel, what we know in our intellect, what, we, what our emotions are like. When we let that be the ruler in our life, we're doing, I believe, what the scripture is saying. Our focus is in the wrong place. And we are actually living as enemies of the cross of Christ, rejecting and opposing his way of salvation. Because the work's done. The work is finished. And if we choose to put our focus on the issue, and the issues are big, I understand. I've been there. But we have a choice. And if we keep our focus on the issue and magnify it and talk about it and, and put every facet of our life surrounding the issue, then it's as if Christ died in vain. And the effect of his salvation is, is, is not being received. Romans 8, 6 says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The word carnal or carnal mindedness refers to the natural realm, the senses, things that, um, are, that we can see, hear, feel. So carnal-mindedness is when we're magnifying that stuff, our issues, the issues of life. In this scripture, if you take out the word is and put an equal sign, when I taught 
school. The word is can literally be replaced with an equal sign. Two plus two is four. It equals four. Carnal mindedness equals death. Now when I say the word death, I mean things that are of the realm of death. Sickness, lack, depression, oppression, fear, all of the junk of the enemy. Carnal mindedness equals death. But spiritual mindedness equals life and peace. And spiritual mindedness is everything we've been talking about. Total dependence on God. Magnifying the cross over the loss. Being spiritually minded. Renewing your mind with the promises of God. So this is what and Andrew spoke about. And this is, this is, he's a very tough love guy. Some of the stuff he said, oh, it's like, I can't believe he just said that. But this is one of the things he said. He said, look at the fruit of your life. The fruit. What, is the, what are you seeing? What is the stuff that you're seeing in your life right now? Is it death or is it life and peace? Is it death? Is it really um, like the things I just, I just said or a lot more? Fear, um, lack of peace, um, strife pain, disease, all that stuff. Is it that? If it is, the other side of that equal sign, the other sign side is carnal mindedness. If you are walking in that steadfastness of peace and strength, even through the mountain and the valleys, then you are probably in that place of spiritual mindedness. Now, I'm not saying that just because you're sick, you're, you're carnal minded. Because you can be fighting something and still be doing it with peace, with strength, with the joy of the Lord that is like, it, it's supernatural. And I see that in many of you guys. I've seen it in many of you, and I still do. But the fruit of our life can point to whether we're being carnally minded or spiritually minded. So magnifying the issues is a big deal. God says it should be the other way. Magnifying the cross over the loss. So here's the last one I want to um, point to. And this wasn't in Andrew's teaching. This is an, another um, powerful truth that has just come to me in the last six months or so. And that is that many times in our very prayer life, as we are in our, our quiet place, having communion with God, many times we have an idol between us and God. The issue of our life, as we take it to God in prayer, is often an idol. Now let me explain that. God is big. Our God is a big, big God. He is a good, good Father. As we magnify Him and His finished work, He is so much greater than any issue of life. But often in that place of prayer, we have this gigantic issue. And I'm going to use an example. Stage 4 cancer. Death sentence. Terminal. We have this huge issue. And we take it to God. And if it's so huge in our, the eyes of our heart, then it has become an idol. Because it's, it's almost as if, here's me, here's the huge issue, and then I have a little bitty God over there. Should not be that way. This is the way it should be. We have this great big God. We magnify him. We put our eyes, the eyes of our heart on him, on Jesus, on the stripes that he took, on the, the joy that he did it with of obtaining the prize, on his love for us, 
on the, the death that he died on the cross to reconcile us to God. We put our eyes on the great bigness of our God. And our problem is minimized. And the way I love to envision it is literally see this great big problem and I literally pinch it between my fingers. You, you know how when you look at the moon or the sun or you're not supposed to look at the sun, but you can take something that is, how big is the sun? Really big. And you can go, can't you? That's what we need to do with the eyes of our heart. Take that great big problem. Say, this is nothing. And then go to God. Magnify your great big God. Your amazing God and the finished work of his cross. And then speak to that little ant. Speak to that little thing that's pinched between your fingers. Whatever it is. Stage four cancer. Not a big deal for my great big God. Speak to it. Say, get out of here. I'm going to get my bug zapper. You know, get you. We need to change our perspective. Even in our prayer life, we often need to change our perspective because we can be praying through this thing which is, becomes an idol because we're giving it more power than we are our God. Hebrews 12a, 12.2a says, looking away from all that will distract and focusing our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of faith, the first incentive for our belief, and the one who brings our faith to maturity. In the, in the New King James, it uses the words, look unto. And that literally means to turn your eyes and your focus away from everything else and focus on Jesus. And I, as I was preparing and meditating on this, yesterday and today i was thinking the second i believe the second half of the scripture is dependent on the first two words jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith but in order for him to to birth the fullness of the truth to conceive it and then to get it pregnant and and then to mature it so that we give it and deliver it we need to do the first part look unto jesus Turn your eyes, turn your head, turn your focus, turn the eyes of your heart away from everything else. Magnify the cross above the loss. Magnify the cross above the gravity of the issue because it is so much bigger. The finished work of the cross and Jesus, so much bigger. But we need to change our focus. The last little quote that I want to share with you, another Andrew one. He says, your mind is like a magnifying glass. Whatever you focus on is magnified. Whatever you think on is magnified. So magnify the cross. Magnify Jesus. 